Welcome to ShipIt.show, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and rave mode. Fastly.com keeps us fast. Fly.io makes our app fly. This is episode 64, and in all previous episodes, we have not had anyone do something as unexpected. Our today's guest spent four days building a feature for his side project so that we could ship it together on ShipIt while recording. The feature is called Rave Mode and the context is Base, an interpreted functional scripting language written in Go, riffing on the ideas of kernel and closure. When the local build runs, you can now press R to synchronize the beats of your currently playing Spotify track with the build output. I mean, this is just a whole new level of fun and love for CICD. Please welcome Alex Surachi, aka Vito, the creator of Concourse CI and Base. There's one more thing. This episode is dedicated to the late John Shutt, the creator of Kernel. Your ideas continue in Base. Thank you for getting them out into the world. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the launch of their Code Insights product, teams can now track what really matters in their code base. Code Insights instantly transforms your code base into a queryable database to create visual dashboards in seconds. And I'm here with Joel Kortler, the product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, the way teams can use Code Insights seems to pretty much be limitless, but a particular problem every engineering team has is tracking versions of languages or packages. How big of a deal is it actually to track versions for teams? Yeah, it's a big deal for a couple of reasons. The first is, of course, just compatibility. You don't want things to break when you're testing locally or to break on your CI systems or test systems. You need to have some sort of level of like version unification and minimum version supported, and all of that needs to be you know, compatible forward. But the other thing we learned was that for a lot of customers, especially you know engineering organizations that are pretty established, they have older versions of things or even older versions of like SaaS tools they don't use anymore that they haven't fully removed because they're like not sure if it's still in use or they you know lost focus on that. And they're spinning up old virtual machines that they're still paying for. Or they're using you know old SaaS subscriptions they're afraid to cancel because they're not sure if anyone's actually using it. And so getting off of those versions not just like saves you the headaches and the risks and the vulnerabilities of being on old versions, but also literally the money of you know older systems running more slowly or the build times or you know virtual machines and SaaS tools that you're no longer using. Before you had this ability, we talked to teams, there are basically three ways you could do this. You could slack a million people and ask for just like an update point in time. You could have sort of one human and one spreadsheet where like it's somebody's job every Friday or every two weeks to just like search all the code and find all the versions and write it down in a Google sheet. Or there were a couple of companies that I came across with in-house systems that were sort of complicated. You had to know, you know, maybe Kotlin, but you didn't know Kotlin. But if you wanted to use the system, you had to learn Kotlin and you'd have to sort of build the whole world from scratch and run basically a tool like this with a pretty steep learning curve. And now for all three of those, you could replace it with a single line source graph search, which is basically just the name of the thing you're trying to track and the version string in the right format. And then we have templates that'll help you get started if you're not sure what that format is. And then it'll automatically track all the different versions for you, both historically. So even if you start using it today, you can see your historical patterns. And then of course, going forward. Very cool. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove 
of insights just waiting for you. Living inside your code base right now. Teams are tracking migrations, adoption, deprecations. They're detecting and tracking versions of languages and packages. They're removing or ensuring the removal of security vulnerabilities. They understand their code by team. They can track their code smells and health, and they can visualize configurations and services and so much more with Code Insights. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. See how other teams are using this awesome feature. Again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link is in the show notes. forward to this for some time now seven months to be more precise and we have lots to talk about concourse ci base the wider ci cd problem space and we have just the right person for this today alex welcome to ship it thanks good to be here so eight years ago i think if i'm counting correctly you had the idea of the ci cd system that was different from everything else that came before. We all know it as Concourse CI. At the time, what made you believe that the world needed Concourse? It's a good question because there was a lot. There was already a lot of like CI/CD systems out there, and there's even more every day. It seems like, but I mean, what really drove it was we were trying to use Jenkins, and we were trying to use that to like automate all of Cloud Foundry, which was like a massive pipeline. We were like gluing together plugins and trying to keep that thing running. And it was kind of its own separate job, just keeping Jenkins in check. And like, meanwhile, we were building out this platform that was like driven by like declarative YAML. You just like say what you want and then you tell it to go. The system figures it out. And the thing that we were using to drive that was very much the opposite. So I wanted to try and take what we learned from that and apply it to CICD. I think the main motivation was having just clarity in how the whole system works and being able to trust it and not worrying about like if that vm gets struck by lightning and dies we have to like spend another week just getting everything like clicking all the right buttons um getting it how it was again so yeah that's that's what brought concourse to the world really uh myself and chris brown raging at jenkins chris brown we actually worked together we were in the london office and we were also struggling with Jenkins big time and GoCD as well. We tried a couple. We went through a phase where we've been trying like different CIs and none of them were quite cutting it. We had the problem of the data services, Cassandra and MySQL and Redis and RabbitMQ. How do you package them in a way that platform teams can use them to enable developer teams to just you know get on with the application code and just provision services? So how do you package that? How do you upgrade? And you obviously have to test all the things. How do you get CVS, CVEs out quickly enough? And a bunch of concerns like that. How do you scale? How do you degrade gracefully? It was such a pain. And interestingly, Jenkins was one of those services. And um, I remember Tamer at the time, uh, he, was, he was the PM on the Pivotal side, and he was saying, hey, if the product that we're packaging doesn't work, let's not try and work around the shortcomings by automation. 
I remember that very clearly. So Jenkins, we were very intimate of how it worked because we ourselves had to do it for other customers and we were using it. We were like dog fooding it and it was failing in so many weird and wonderful ways. And then Concourse came along. Hmm, nice. Chris Brown, yeah, I haven't talked to him in years. How is he these days? Do you, do you know about him? Hey, Chris, if you're listening, uh, I'm saying hi. <laughs> Hope you are. He, yeah, he's just, you know, living it up at Stripe, doing a lot of... Uh, he's, he's actually working on their workflow engine team, which uh, mm. uses Temporal under the hood, um, which is kind of a... Ooh, interesting. Yeah, kind of a funny coincidence, because they, they showed up on, like, GitHub discussions a while back saying how, like, they use Concourse to deliver Temporal. Wow. And they, they linked this article, it was from, like, San Diego Times or something, mm. and the screenshot in the article was not Temporal, it was their dashboards, their Concourse dashboards that deliver Temporal. So That's crazy. But, what a small world. Yeah, the places that, like, Concourse Web UI shows up is always interesting. Okay, okay. So I think one of the things that made Concourse so memorable and so I, it, it, it had a face and the face was the pipeline. I don't think, at least in my experience, I haven't seen any other CI that did pipelines or that does pipelines, the views of a pipeline, as good as Concourse did it. Whose idea was that to make that the only, the default Concourse view and the only Concourse view? Um, well, it's since gotten a little more complicated. There's like the whole dashboard that wraps it and it like compresses into like a thumbnail view thingy. Right. Um, and you click into that. But uh, ultimately, like the, the UI that we have today was like myself and Amit, Amit Gupta, mm -hmm. just like messing around after hours at Pivotal trying to come up with like, what is a good visualization? Mm -hmm. The first stage was actually just using like GraphViz and just like feeding it like a, a, a DAG and then seeing what it renders. And it did interesting things, but it couldn't quite express like fan out, fan in and all the different kinds of things. So mm -hmm. that turned into just like banging my face against JavaScript until things mostly worked and then fixing whatever bugs came up. Yeah, you're right. You're actually right. Uh, you mentioned uh, the collection of pipelines that was added later on i remember it for like many years like back in the time like when it first came out it was just the pipeline view and that kept improving i really like like the small incremental improvements i really like the the groove box like initial design because then it changed became a bit more brighter oh i see what you mean the colors yes the colors yeah. exactly uh, I really liked those. It was a bit rough, but it was it was just the right amount of rough, and it was very memorable. And you could see it everywhere in all the offices, uh, in all the pivotal offices, because there was like so much stuff that we were building, and there were monitors everywhere, and you could just like take a look and see exactly what the problem was. And I think the problem was yeah. like that we had too many pipelines. So I think that's where the view came from, right? Like the one with yeah, the dashboard. Yeah, exactly. It it's funny how it all evolved because initially. Concourse was literally, you would start the ATC program, ATC being like the, the coordinator, web UI, everything, kind of a bit of a monolith. And you would literally just give it a config file. Mm. And that config file was the pipeline. And then we went from there to like, what if you want multiple pipelines? And then from there to like, what if you want multiple teams? And then yeah. pipeline groups. And now you have like the whole dashboard, like multiple teams, and like entire enterprises putting everything on one box. And that's how you lead to like melting machines and things like that. But it started off quaint and okay. fun. <laughs> what was the biggest early on challenge when you started Concourse? Do you remember? I think probably the biggest challenge was just managing the pace of onboarding and trying to balance like having a good ratio of people that actually want to use it versus people that felt like there was some 
you know, thing that they have to use it. Because mm-hmm. um, that really changes the types of interactions that you get with people. Like if you're trying to, if you're providing something where you're solving a, a problem that they have, you'll get like much nicer interactions. But if you're building something that they feel like they have to use, then they don't pull as many punches. <laughs> it's yeah. not going well. Did people feel instinctively, like did they know instinctively what to do with concourse? Or did it take a while to explain what it is and how to configure it and how to, how did you find that? I think people did pretty okay at like picking up how to use it, at least within Pivotal. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go as far as to say it was easy. They probably really stumbled for a while and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of them didn't like it because the documentation was just, you know, us writing the best we could. It was all just like reference material. We never really had like a technical writer. Yeah, I, I think like there were a lot of times where it would be like called over to help someone figure out how to do something in a pipeline. One of the like most common pain points was like someone wanted to acquire an environment and then like use that environment through a few jobs and then release it in a later job. Um, and that was always painful to do with Concourse. I think we never really had a great solution to that. We had like an interesting one that used a Git repo as a lock, mm. which worked, but it was a little clutchy because you have to manually release it now and then. There were a lot of people doing that because there were a lot of people using Concourse for continuous delivery. Mm. I'm pretty sure that you are one of the people that felt that Concourse was more than a CI/CD system. It was like integrating with all these things and there was like so much possibility, as you mentioned, like integrating with Git, with GitHub, with a Git repository for like locks and S3. And uh, it was basically the state you had to keep it outside of Concourse or like some very good, strong principles. How did you think of Concourse from the beginning all the way until like you uh, stopped working on it? I always kind of thought of it as a way to codify your entire like dependency chain and automation process Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of like if this then that but more generally like what are all the things that people would be manually doing within your organization or imagining you're like one person trying to drive an entire startup that's kind of where i imagine concourse being very useful because then you just can empower yourself to get more done because you've just like have something else doing it all for you whether that's like automated testing or automated like periodic longevity tests that like run every hour and just make sure your tests didn't suddenly get more flaky or like testing infrastructure reliability or just anything that you need to do continuously. Um, Concourse was your guy. That was the idea. Mm. I always saw it as automation with a nice UI. Yep. I mean, that's what it was. And you were able to do things, as you mentioned, checks. And at a glance, you could see, are they passing or are they failing? And what is the failure ratio? I mean, there were like so many interesting things there. Uh, the logs, the pipeline view is so important, like the state of resources, for example. Like it, it has some very simple primitives, but it was very versatile. Yep. It was so much more than the CI/CD system. And I think that's what people saw in it. I mean, at some point, I know it was like the distribution mechanism for the Pivotal software, mm-hmm. because pretty much everyone that had that was running all these like large clusters, whether it was Cloud Foundry, whether it was like all the stateful services, how do you keep everything up to date? Never mind the applications. So you needed to provide automation that shows you the health at the glance of what is happening. You had to have notifications, all that all the thing. And also when when there's a problem you had to go and debug it quickly. Yeah, it kind of acted like, as like the central plane. It was like the source of truth for like what's the status of the whole system which 
it's kind of interesting because like when COVID hit and everyone started working from home, suddenly we didn't have like the central, you know, dashboard TV that everyone looked at. It became much harder to keep tabs on CICD and metrics and mm-hmm. things like that. So that got me yeah. thinking more about like notifications or something that like keeps it more in your face, but don't have anything deep there. What was it like to work on Concourse for so many years? I mean, I think it was six, seven, roughly. It was a long ride. Yeah. What was it like? It was a lot of fun. The The team obviously like, you know, changed in cycles, like Pivotal was all about like rotating people um, semi-frequently. They really slowed down. Um, when I moved to Toronto, the rate of rotation like really slowed down. I think it was just different office culture, but like throughout those six years, it was just a lot of really fun engineers to work with. We had some good um, team culture things early on. We had every retro, someone from the team would like make a dish from their home culture mm-hmm. and like bring it and we'd like let the whole office have it. I think probably the highlight of my career though was when we had a retro and someone literally just put like, I love my job in the happy column. I was like, wow, cool. Doing something right, I guess. That's amazing. Yeah. That was a very fortunate person. It was a very fortunate team. And um, I think we felt it as users. I mean, sure, we were frustrated at times, but we could see how hard everyone was working. Oh, yeah. Um, Seeing on GitHub all the pull requests, all the issues, all the stuff that was going through. There was so much stuff, so many good things, great things. And even from the outside, it felt like it was a great ride. So after Concourse... You started something else, base. What is base? Base is kind of trying to learn from what I think were some of the mistakes with Concourse. One of them being try to express a system that can do everything, but like within the confines of a declarative YAML uh, config. Mm. YAML is a problem. Like everyone listening, it's yeah. not the declarative part. That's okay. That's good. We like that. <laughs> <laughs> so what is wrong? What is wrong with YAML? What is what is wrong with with that combination? I think there's. I could debate both parts, I think. Mm. Um, some aspects of declarative are also kind of falling out of favor with me, but that's mm. it's like largely a... I think it's because I'm kind of shifting away from both at the same time, so I'm really like considering alternatives to declarative systems too. Really? Do tell. That's very interesting. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, with, with the YAML part, it's really just like not having a real language at your disposal. You're kind of inventing like a language within it. Um, like we like to say that Concourse pipelines were declarative schema, but really it was declaring a set of jobs that then had like an imperative plan within them. And the more you know, bespoke we made that DSL, we got into things like scoping, like what, what's the scope of this uh, value that's being bound within the build plan? Mm-hmm. Um, largely with like the across step is where this came up. The across step was like one of the most recently introduced ones where it's like across all these values do this step. So you end up like wanting to bind an asset to a, uh, a value, but then it's like, does that scope, like, does that binding escape to later steps? And then it's like, why are we just not implementing a language where like doing a cross is just a for loop? So that's that's kind of where I am with YAML. It's it's just not very well suited, I think, to actually expressing something. And that's, that's why like so many people end up templating it. Um, and then you just have like two problems. Now you're like thinking at like a template level and a YAML level. Um, now you need to like manage that pipeline feeding into the system. So yeah, it just makes things way more complicated, I think. Okay. So when it comes to the declarative part, I mean, I'm, I'm still stuck on that because I wasn't expecting it to be honest and I'm, and I'm surprised and I'm just curious, like, like what could be better than, than declarative? There's, there's a solid chance that I'm wrong in this and like, I 
go back to being declarative is great, but the the problem that I see with it all great engineers say that all great engineers there's there's a good chance I'm wrong with this, but still this is what I think. <laughs> so take <laughs> appreciate it. The problem I see with declarative approaches to CI/CD is the the system they're building around is not declarative. Mm. Like the system being developers just running commands. Most people they'll like go to CI/CD. They'll know what commands they want to run. Like I want to run go test. I want to run like rspec or whatever, mm. uh, or whatever their build process is. Like commands are already the foundation that we're really building everything upon. Um, even Docker and BuildKit kind of like build on that abstraction because they're all about just running commands and containers. Uh, the problem I see with declarative wrapping systems for that is that someone has to implement the mapping between like declaring what you want and having that boil down to commands. Mm. And we saw this with Concourse where like the Git resource started off as just like a perfect example of just a tiny little Concourse resource. It does like Git clone, Git fetch, Git push, that's it. But the reality was that like everyone uses Git differently. So if you look at the um, like slash op slash resource slash in script now, it's like a hundred line bash file handling like a bunch of different use cases, uh, like tagged versioning, things like that. And you have to kind of distill that up to what in Concourse's YAML resource doesn't care. It's just JSON. But in any case, somewhere there's like a declarative config that maps to commands running. And it just like kind of adds an extra level of indirection between what the developer knows they want to run mm -hmm. and how they know it's actually going to run. And there's like the added toil of someone managing that mapping interface. I mean, all that being said, like commands aren't necessarily the best interface to expose. It's just what people already know. I think if you are able to express something as just a declarative thing and it works and it's like low enough maintenance and maybe you get bells and whistles like static typing or easy to verify schemas and things like that, then I think like it, it is possible for the value trade-off to be there. But I guess from my current perspective of like trying to build base as like a side thing, not expend too much effort, it would be a lot of effort for me to have to invent these mappings for everything as opposed to just being like, hey, it runs commands. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's okay. my bias right now. Yeah. So when you say commands, are you thinking more like rather than having this mapping between a, a declarative thing and a command, Mm -hmm. You're thinking just in terms of commands. So when I hear that, I'm thinking about the functional paradigm where you have a function, there's an input and an output, and then the focus is on the function, not on the mappings. Are you thinking along the same lines or is there something else? Kind of. I mean, a lot of commands really are just you're running a function and you're expecting some output. Mm -hmm. I, I'd venture like 99% of the time that output is either like a file on disk or something that it wrote to standard out, maybe a JSON stream or something like that. Mm -hmm. So you, you don't really control whether the commands are idempotent or like pure or anything like in a functional sense, but they do very much fit like a functional interface. Okay. And there, there are exceptions there where like some CLIs have like subcommands and like different like syntax for it, but it ultimately boils down to like you're identifying a function call passing it parameters and it's giving you outputs. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess, I guess I do kind of see command lines as a very functional interface yeah. and um, being able to pass results from those commands to another, I think that's really where the special sauce is from base. Because if you try to just script things running commands in bash, you have to like deal with those files. You have to put them somewhere, pass them to this other thing, clean them up after. Yeah. So I'm trying to build something that makes, I guess, something that treats commands like functions that you can easily use. Yeah. 
some team members have this joke in, in, on, on the RabbitMQ team, which uh, RabbitMQ uses Erlang, uh, which is a highly, highly functional language. And um, the joke was that if you're an experienced enough programmer, you're most likely a functional programmer. <laughs> like basically it all boils down to function somewhere. And once you come to accept that, your world will be better. Obviously that's not always true. We had Gary Bernhardt uh, a few episodes back. And if you haven't heard his FOO talk, you should, because it's a very good one. So it explains why functional is just weird and why object-oriented has its own shortcomings. But uh, FOO is a thing and I really like it. Anyways, uh, we, we, we can put a link in the show notes. So I'm wondering if, because the base language, base slang, B-A-S-S-Lang, dot com, is it? Org. Org, thank you, dot org. I might own dot com, but dot org is the canonical one. So base.lang.org. Um, it explains, by the way, it's a very nice website. The Groovebox theme, <laughs> I love it. It's actually different. Okay. Uh, it's different every time you load the page. Really? There's like a handful of themes that it shuffles through. This is a kind of a callback to Concourse because at one point we were thinking of switching the color scheme. So we added a, if you press like a special key, maybe it was like Alt S or something, it would actually bring up a little drop down so you could change the theme. Right. So I, I brought that back to base, but a little more extreme because it literally changes every time you load the page. But you can change it if you want at the bottom. Really? I don't think it changed. I've, mine has stayed the same ever since. Uh, scroll all the way down. Do you have a reset button there? Reset? I do have a reset button. You probably pinned it to a theme at some point. Ah, yeah. so I picked it. See, I picked it. All right, okay, let me, let me reset that. Okay, oh, I see it now. Yeah. Okay, now when I reload, I see it. Yeah, okay, yeah, so I chose Groovebox. See, okay, it was for <laughs> me. All right, that's really cool. So every page is different, like differently colored every page load. That's really neat. Okay, very nice. My favorite is Rose Pine. Um, Rose Pine. Shout out to Rose Pine, I guess. Let's check it out. Hang on. It's very nice, like luxurious looking color scheme. Rose Pine, Dawn, Moon, or the classic? Uh, just regular. The regular Rose Pine. Uh, they're all good too, but like Dawn is Ooh. the light mode. Yeah. I see. Interesting. Rose Pine, Dawn. Okay. Yeah, go check it out. Oh, yes. Rose Pine. That's like the Dawn. That's like the light one. And the Moon is the dark one. Very nice. Okay. So you have like all these concepts. You have like the basics. Yeah. And uh, and I love that. It's not a typo. There, there are double S's. Uh, <laughs> the basics. Is the thunk, I'm looking for a thunk. Uh, is that what would the function equivalent be in base? Uh, thunks are, they're named that way because they kind of mirror zero arity function calls, mm -hmm. but they represent commands. So that's, that's the distinction. Base is a functional language, but it represents commands as like a lazily evaluated data structure called a thunk. And it's also just called thunk because it sounds funny and semi-musical so yeah okay where does a space invaders thing come from because that's another thing which i <laughs> noticed that's a good one that's a good question honestly i don't know why i picked space invaders i wanted something um there's a pattern in the docs where like sometimes it'll show a thunk and then show it again in another context so i wanted it to be easy to recognize that they're actually the same ah, I see. so it was either like Gravatar or build like a Space Invaders thing. And I thought the Space Invaders would be more fun because I wanted a way to uh, tie the colors to the color scheme too. Yeah. So that way I can control the whole stack. That makes sense. I'm just looking at the image now and I can see the three echoes which have a Space Invader that, that looks the same. 
and it just shows it's actually the same command, right? That's what that's representing. Yeah, and if you click it, it'll show the actual attributes of the command. Oh, wow, that's amazing. You have to check it out. Like as a listener, it's okay to put on pause and to go and check baselang.org because this is a really nice website. I can't believe that you do this for fun in your free time. Like you must really love CICD, functional, the whole fun functional paradigm, and there's just problem space. Why is that? Why, why do you like it so much? Um, I think it's more broad than CICD. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just like the experience, like the whole process, I think, from building and publishing software. There's another side project, which I've been like putting out there, but really no one cares because it's just yet another static site engine. But this site is built in Booklet, mm -hmm. which also has its own site. I think it's like booklet.page. Okay. And you can really tell I built both of them because they look like the same. <laughs> yes, I can see it. Okay. I can see the same structure. That's really cool. So I, I can see a lot of like a Lisp-like structure here and Lisp-like structures. That's true too. Yeah. In Booklet, you mean? Yeah. Why Lisp? I just, so I think the fundamental appeal of Lisp to me is being able to do a lot with a little. Mm. languages maybe that's even the part of the appeal of go to me too because go is it's a pretty small language um it also is like kind of in that mindset i'll probably offend a lot of people saying like lisp and go are similar to each other but mm. uh, i think fundamentally it's the same thing that attracts me to both but especially lisp because like a long time ago before i actually got into like professional software engineering i was just learning a lot of languages i've always just really been into languages and i especially liked ones where it's like you start with these five primitives and from there on you can build anything out there it's like turing complete mm -hmm. so that's that's what brought me to like scheme racket was also a lot of fun because it was all about building languages on top of racket and i think like the world needs a lot more of these like tiny domain specific languages that try to like focus on one thing and racket tried to be like the platform for building those languages Mm -hmm. But there's actually kind of interesting story behind the specific flavor of Lisp mm -hmm. that's behind Base. Um, okay, it's it's actually based on a kind of lesser known one called Kernel. Mm -hmm. Kernel's whole thing was, you know, Scheme was uh, six abstractions. Um, Kernel is five because it took one and made it more generic. Right. So you know how like Lisps they're known for having macros, right? Mm -hmm. Like compile time, macro expansion. Kernel, uh, instead of having macros, it had something called an operative, mm -hmm. which is something that deferred the evaluation of its arguments. So when you called an operative, you would get the unevaluated forms and the caller's scope, and then you could selectively evaluate them in the caller's scope. Mm -hmm. um, I think IO actually is kind of similar to this. So yeah, a long time ago, I tried implementing that. Mm -hmm. I implemented one in Haskell, it's called Hummus. Mm -hmm. Implemented one in R Python called Pumice and one in my own language called Cletus. Guess which one was the fattest, fastest? <laughs> Your own language? No way. Your own language is the fastest one. <laughs> no. <definitely> no? <laughs> Wrong answers only. It was Python. Python. Python, wow. actually. Yeah, because Maybe. it was specifically yeah. R Python. So PyPy would compile it to C, and then it just like blew out the other implementations out of the water. So yeah, I, I did these like a long time ago, probably like 2010. Mm -hmm. And then right about the time I was leaving VMware and looking to start on base, someone actually approached me and said, um, hey, we're trying to collect all the implementations or details for kernel because the guy that invented it just passed away. Wow. I was like, damn, I'd, I'd never talked to this guy. Now I feel kind of bad because like, I feel like I kind of carried the torch a bit with 
face, but there's nothing I can do to like, you know, make him aware of that. Mm. Uh, but yeah, he was a really cool dude, uh, John Shutt. I'm just saying really cool. I don't know him. He's probably really cool. Apparently contributed to Wiki News a lot. Okay. Well, if anyone knows John Shutt or anyone knows, like, this is a shout out to him. And uh, if you know anyone that worked with him, that's amazing. Yeah, just like let them know that the memory and his ideas live on in base. Wow, that's a great story. Very interesting, but the the trouble with kernel is it's hard to optimize because there's literally an eval after every corner. Um, okay. But that doesn't matter in a language like base because the bottleneck is going to be like running containers. Like the runtime interpreter is probably not going to be slower than that. Hey friends, this episode is brought to you by Sentry and their upcoming developer experience conference called DEX. Sort the madness. Deploying new code can be a lot like making a really great sandwich, taking a bite, and having all the contents fall out. It's exciting, it's chaotic, and it's maddening. If you know the feeling, then DEX by Sentry might just be for you. This is a free conference by developers for developers. We will sort through the madness and look for ways to improve workflow productivity. Join Sentry for this event in San Francisco or virtually on September 28th and discover new ways to make your life a little easier. Save your seat now for this event at bit.ly slash DEX2022. Again, bit.ly slash DEX2022. This link is in the show notes. One of the base components is this, as you mentioned, the runtime compiler. Is that what you've said? Runtime... Well, there's runtimes. There's no compiler. All right. Sorry. Okay. How do you call basically the language in which you code base? What is that component? So there's like like the runtime which actually runs it, and this is the front end of it. The I'm I'm just trying to find a name for it that describes it. What it is? The interpreter. The interpreter. Yes. Of the language itself. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. The interpreter. Okay. What is the runtime of base? So it gets just parsed into a syntax tree of like at that point, it's just forms. You know, as with Lisp, there's no difference between like a form and a value. It's just whether it's been evaluated or not. So okay. that gets fed into Go. It walks over each of the forms and calls eval on them. Mm-hmm. The tricky thing is everything is implemented in continuation passing style, which is a way of implementing tail recursion, essentially. Okay. So languages that are implemented on like a non-tail call optimizing platform usually do that because otherwise there's no way to do infinite loops right which would be bad for a continuous system because its point is to be an infinite loop so if i didn't have like continuation passing style then yeah probably eventually base servers would die if anyone was using it for cicd yeah that's a good one i'm pretty sure that erlang is optimized for that uh because it, it just like it has to be able to deal with like infinite loops and yeah it's optim. okay okay so yeah that makes sense and the list comprehensions and all that, you can just keep recursing and, you know, you won't blow any memory or any stack or anything like that. Okay. So where does all this code run? Like, where do all those instructions run? And I'm trying to get to the build kit part because I know, like, looking at base, that that's, that's the runtime. But where does that run? How does, like, how does that 
interfacing happen and how does something useful get produced in base as a container or a file or whatever the case may be, a binary? Um, well, the language runs in the same way that like Ruby or Python or any other interpreted language does. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's one huge difference, actually, in case it hasn't been made clear yet, I guess, is like between concourse and base. Concourse is like a service that you deploy and you like point it to a database and it maintains all this state and you feed it YAML and like YAML is like the language that you're writing. Mm -hmm. Base, there's no server. It's just a language interpreter. So you just run base files. If you want to run a CICD server, you're just running a base file that's a loop. So that's the key difference. But okay. when it comes to BuildKit, that's where it actually just talks to BuildKit over the regular like gRPC interface that it exposes. Mm -hmm. So that could be local or remote. Yeah, I, th I think I've only really tested it locally, but in principle, it's just like calling over the API. And I think the client already handles like uploading files. So mm -hmm. I think it would work remotely, but I haven't tried yet. Yeah. I also know there's like the base loop component. What is What is the base loop? So base itself isn't really a CI thing any more than like Ruby or Python is. So base loop is basically the CI thing. I had been just running base in GitHub Actions, but it was just very slow because you don't control the environment. Like, you know, I'm developing base on like a RX 4950, like whatever, I've, I probably butchered the name, but like whatever the really nice AMD CPU is, but then it's like running on some co-located server probably in GitHub Actions. It's not able to use BuildKit efficiently because it's a new run every time you could use caching, but then you're trading like CPU time for just IO time managing the caches. So what I wanted to do with base loop is have a server that I just run that receives GitHub webhooks, and then you bring a runner to it. So it doesn't have its own dedicated CI stack. Um, and it's basically webhooks come in, it evaluates base code in response by like calling out to your repo. And where does the runner run? And what is the runner in this case? The runner is someone running base dash dash runner and then github.baselang.org. Mm -hmm. What that essentially does is, if anyone's familiar with how concourse workers ran, it's very similar where concourse had like a SSH gateway called the TSA. Yep. You'd connect to it, it would forward some connections. And then when the ATC needed to use that worker, it would actually talk to a local forwarded address through SSH. Okay. So. Based runner is doing basically the same thing, where it exposes the local runtimes as a gRPC service. So then mm -hmm. when a webhook comes into base loop, it connects to the forwarded address and then uses that runner. So that way I can actually use my like AMD massive developer machine instead of being, you know, stuck with whatever the free tier is on yeah. GitHub Actions. Interesting. What about registering your own GitHub runner? Have you considered that? I don't know what those words mean. Okay. So you know, like you get like the free GitHub runner, uh, just by by default. But then you can run your own, and you can you know either have like a, a VM like process that registers with GitHub, and then the runner is available to pick up jobs. Gotcha. Or and I've seen I've seen this as being more recommended because of the ephemeral state of GitHub runners. They're supposed to be like cleaned and like brand new on every single run. You can run um, a controller in Kubernetes. And then uh, the runners are like registered on demand based on what jobs are available. And that like scales a bit nicer and you get like containers, you get like, but again, you should be able to trust your infrastructure or, I mean, 
it's it's a tough problem. Like running this is is a tough problem, and that's why the majority will just use the the free tiers. Well, I mean, it sounds pretty similar. It sounds like something I could do, but I guess the other goal, which I didn't mention, is escaping YAML. Ah, yes, that's a good one. That's a that's a worthy goal. If I if I'm using GitHub Actions, then I'm back to YAML. Oh yes. Um, back to those like wrappers managed by, mm. you know, random people doing their best, but still just a lot of dependencies to manage. Don't you miss the GitHub Marketplace with all the actions that you could use from there? Not really, because like most things that I use, including GitHub itself, um, they already ship a C, uh, CLI. Mm. So to to ship base, for example, I just run you know gh release create or whatever, but as a base thunk. Yeah, I mean that kind of gets back to what I was talking about with all the like declarative wrappers. Is if you avoid that and have your abstraction level be lower, then you automatically get like the entire marketplace, which is being built by everyone. Yeah. So you do have this file which made me spell when i've noticed it it is a base file and it's called a ship it file yeah what does the ship it file do <laughs> uh it ships it so the gist of it is it builds a binary for each supported platform so linux darwin windows um, arm mm -hmm. for darwin as well and then just passes that to gh release create mm which all those words I said about declarative wrappers, I actually wrote a wrapper myself for GH. So <laughs> maybe it's just, I like functional wrappers more than declarative ones, but yeah, it's just a small script that mm. takes the, it reuses the, uh, the functions for building base and just passes the result into the GH release create command. But the nifty thing it also does is it takes the data representation of those thunks. Uh, like the JSON format, and publishes those to the release as well. Mm. And then it publishes like SHA-256 of each file. So kind of the the neat thing that I want to be able to do with the base is like not only have it so you can build up those thunks and have them get like bigger and bigger and bigger as you pass like more results between them, uh, but you can actually just snapshot them. And assuming those thunks are hermetic, then you have a reproducible build that you can publish. Mm. Interesting. So when say hermetic, you mean something that is the same something that's it's like idempotent it it accounts for every input that might change its result is kind of how i sum it up so if you have like a, a hermetic data structure and you run it like today and you run it tomorrow or mm -hmm. assuming the inputs are still available granted but the point is yeah you should get the same result no matter where you run it which is kind of a, a fundamental building block, I think, for CICD. Mm. It was something Concourse tried to enforce, but I think that's also where a lot of people ran into pain with it, was Concourse being a little too overbearing. No, I think I think that's really important, especially like supply chain security is more and more in our minds. And for that, you need to have this property. Without this property, it's very difficult to achieve that. I mean, you should be able to like to build the same thing, compare it bit for bit, and make sure, again, given these inputs, this is the output. And if you can trust the inputs and you can verify the inputs and you can, again, access the same inputs, the output should be identical. And if it's not identical, you have a problem somewhere. I mean, you also have to trust the thing that's building it, I guess, but... Yes, for sure. But the thing that's building it, I mean, I suppose it can be the same, like, if the same builder runs in multiple locations, and it uses the same inputs. So it doesn't matter where the builder runs, the output should be the same, right? Because it's, it's the whole, like, the, there's there's no state 
that the builder has, uh, not even time, that makes it, you know, like if you have time drift, like milliseconds, micros, anything like that, it will not have any impact on the final artifact. And that's super important because it can compare two things, you know, run remotely and even like complete, completely different architectures. But the end result should be always the same. It's a nice way of verifying it, I, I suppose, as well. It's, it's funny you mentioned time because that was one of the things that broke the initial builds of base was that when you archive something up, it has timestamps in it, right? Yep. So if you tried to download those JSON files and rebuild base back in the day, it wouldn't produce the same thing because the archive had different timestamps in it. So now what base does is it actually normalizes all the timestamps. So when you, when you have a thunk build something and then you pass that result to another thunk, It'll actually see the timestamps as 1985. Okay. Some specific date. It's not your birthday, is it? No. No, good. <laughs> uh, I, I stole this from the Node community, I think. There's like okay. a, it's it's the exact timestamp from Back to the Future. Mm -hmm. um, and I figured might as well make it a standard because either one's going to be arbitrary. That's an amazing reference. Okay. So that's part of base too. Space Invaders, Back to the Future. What else is part of base? This sounds like a very interesting project. <laughs> <laughs> the, so actually, I was prepared to ship the next version of base, unship it, but mm -hmm. I'm terrified of running this command on my machine while doing a screencast because I'm using my partner's like old MacBook. But it has a very important feature, which I call rave mode, mm -hmm. where if you press R, there's a little spinner by where it says playing. Uh-huh. Actually, I can link you to the pull request that adds it because it has a pretty good GIF. Yes, please. That's, that sounds amazing. No, wait. So hang on. You're trying to ship a new version of base and ship it? Is that what's happening right now? That was the plan. No way. No <laughs> way. And by the way, dear listeners, it's Friday, 7 p.m. <laughs> as we are recording this. <laughs> so uh, it's 2 p.m. here. possibly it's fine. It's fine. go wrong? Oh, yes. It's 2 p.m. for you. Yeah. Okay. So it's fine. <laughs> it's only for me. It's 7 p.m. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. Uh, I put a link in the chat if you want to see. There's a GIF there. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Yep. Pull request. 222. No way. We are not making this stuff up. It's the 22nd of July as we are recording this. 2022. And the pull request is 222. No way. No way. <laughs> this is too good. So I'm looking at the rave. I love that little bar. Is is that it? Like the little, like the shrinking bar? Yep. Oh, Wow. So no this was actually quite an adventure. It took like four days to implement this thing. And this is four days of vacation, not just like four days after hours, because it syncs with the Spotify API. So like each beat that you're seeing there is not only synced to like the BPM, it's actually literally rendering the beats in the song. No way, man. <laughs> no way. So if you try to play, if you listen to like Lateralis by Tool, which has like changing uh, uh, mm -hmm. time, I forget what it's called. Uh, but it'll actually like speed up and slow down at certain parts. Okay, this is too cool. Like this is too cool. So how can I try this? How can I test this? You can install from main, just like from source. Okay. If you want it. All right. Uh, but it integrates with Spotify, so I don't know if you use Spotify. This recording just got derailed. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know whether we're meta mode. I don't know what's happening anymore. But I know it's really cool. I don't want to try it out right now. You can probably just go install it. Actually, I don't think you need anything like that. If you okay. Brew install UPX. Brew install UPX. Yeah, that's one gotcha dependency that you'll need. UPX, okay. It's for compressing the binaries. So like base has to, when it calls into 
build kit. It has to run thunks like through a little shim to like meet the interfaces that it needs, like supporting standard in, standard in, for example. Okay. But those binaries are too large to pass over gRPC, so I have to compress them and then bundle them in. That's what UPX is for. Interesting. Okay, so I have Git, I have Go, I have UPX. Okay, uh, Git clone, CD, and then make install. Yep, should do it. Okay, cool. Man, this is really cool. I was not expecting this, but I'm loving it. Do you use Spotify? <laughs> really, really do. Uh, no. Oh. But I can get an account. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, seriously, I'm getting an account for this. This is like worth it. This just got derailed, but it's amazing. Sign up. Let's see. Sign up with Google. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, there you go. Uh, oh, this email is already connected to an account, so I must have one. Okay, continue with Google, and I don't even know one. You do not have a Spotify connected to your Google account. Okay. I have a username and it works. Okay, I'm logged in. I do have Spotify and I didn't even know. <laughs> that's, that's how long ago it's been. Okay. So I have um I have base. Okay, and let me just install it. Okay. Off it goes. You'll need build kit running somewhere somehow. Okay, I have uh if you have Docker running, it should uh just start it for you now. Nice. Yes, I do actually. I need to update the I need to push the docs. Yeah, cool. I stole cool, that cool. from Dagger. <laughs> Very sweet. That's amazing. Okay, great ideas. Great ideas. See, that's what happens. Okay, what is Lima? Uh, Lima is it's a really cool project where they're trying to, you know, there's like this general pattern of like a lot of developers use Macs, but they need to use Docker or like some other Linux tool. Lima is basically generalizing that where instead of having like a VM managed by like Docker desktop and another VM, uh, if, if BuildKit like productized itself, mm -hmm. uh, Lima is like a general template toolkit for spinning up VMs with software pre-installed. And they had one for BuildKit, but you shouldn't need it anymore because uh, now it'll just spin up BuildKit in Docker. Interesting. Okay. I have base. Oh, it works. What do they do next? Base rave? Uh, base, you could run a demo. Uh, like booklet test dot base demos booklet test. Okay, so base v base demos booklet test. Yep. Uh, test dot base. Uh, test dot base. Yes. Okay. Now press R. R. Yep. Yep. Okay. And that should open a browser. It did. You don't see it because that's like on a separate one. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So now it should be. Synced. If you press D. D in here, yep. Yeah. Like in base. Yes. Oh, it doesn't look like it's synced, actually. Okay. Try. Let's see. I Maybe because you don't see the other window, maybe there's something wrong and you don't know what is wrong. So let me stop sharing this window and let maybe share. You know what? Let me try sharing the entire screen. How about that? I'll share this entire screen. I'm going to move this on the left-hand side. I'm going to move this on the right-hand side. So that was Spotify. That's what I want to do. So base this one. Press D, you said? Oh, there. Get currently. Couldn't decode. User not registered in the development dashboard. Do I have to enable users? I've never, like, I'm the only user right now. So That's great. We're testing this. I love it. You haven't shipped it yet, right? Like, we are still working towards, I'm like, basically QAing the feature that you're about to ship. <laughs> and, I'm the, I'm, and I'm the second ever user to do this. So That's right. I think this is exactly what we would expect to happen. It works on your computer. 
Yeah. But does it work on mine? <laughs> That's the question we should try to answer now. How to enable... Oh, is it because it's in development mode? Okay. Uh, what's your... Can you put your Spotify email? I think if I just add you here, it might work. Yes, yes, yes. It's this one. Good to know. And this is the Spotify's name. Same as my Twitter, Gerhard Lazzi. Okay, try now. You, uh, you probably also need to be playing something. <laughs> okay. Uh, let me play this. Uh, if you want, you could run one that's like infinite. Uh, if you don't mind spending one of your cores, you could run demos slash fib dash loop. <laughs> I have 10. Not a problem. <laughs> there Actually you go. 20, but anyways. So demos fib loop. Yep, uh, with a dash. Off it goes. And then try okay. pressing R. R, yes. Nothing happens. It didn't show that error now, at least. No, it didn't. Maybe it's already connected. Try capital R to clear it, and then R again to... Yes, it opened this. Okay. Agree. Yep. That looks fine. And you're playing something? I'm not playing anything just yet, but I'm playing something now. Okay, and then, yeah, press R again to sync it. R again. Yep. Yes. There you go. Nice. And if you press D, it'll oh, look show, at that. like, the... And the cup D. Yeah, there you go. Yes. Oh, no way. We made a thing change color. <laughs> How many engineers does it take? <laughs> Actually be sing to a song that I'm playing in Spotify. Oh, wow, this is so cool. <laughs> no way. The tragic thing, though, is Spotify's API doesn't give you enough info to actually sync it perfectly. So it does its best. Okay. Uh, but if it's out of sync, you can press minus and plus to, like, adjust the timing. Okay. So if I do minus now, what does minus do? Uh, it So it has it go back by like 100 milliseconds. Okay. Yeah, so it's just like a slight timing because often it's out of sync. No way. So let me try and summarize what we've done here. We are running an infinite command in base. We have synced the base CLI. We've connected the base CLI. We've authenticated the base CLI with a Spotify, with my Spotify account. And whenever I'm playing a song, whatever's running in bass locally, it synchronizes with a song and the BPMs and the colors match what is happening in the song. Is that what we've done here? It doesn't affect like the program or anything. It's just purely that little spinner thing there. But yeah, this... No way. Usually when I'm working on something, I'm listening to music at the same time. So it's just kind of fun to see like a spinner sync up to it. This is amazing no way okay. i have to take a screenshot of all this like i'm going to move some windows around for us to see this i'm going to stop sharing my my screen so i can take a proper screenshot i'm going to adjust some lighting and this one is going in the show notes all this because this is unbelievable all right this is a screenshot that will make it in the show notes another one that we we're taking early on this one that shows this amazingness that we've just done. Okay, so step one is done. Step two, shipping it, right? Because we confirmed it works. Right, well, ish. Anything, <laughs> anything else that needs to happen? <laughs> it works as long as I'm acutely aware of everyone that uses base and add them as a user of this app. So I need to figure out how to change this app to a different status. So it's not developer anymore, that's the one. Yeah, well... I have to tell you, I feel very special for being the first <laughs> user other than you for which base works in this way. I'm super excited about this. Appreciate the testing. Anytime.
This episode is brought to you by our friends at Retool. Retool helps teams focus on product development and customer value, not building and maintaining internal tools. It's a low-code platform built specifically for developers. No more UI libraries, no more hacking together data sources, and no more worrying about access controls. Start shipping internal apps that move your business forward in minutes with basically zero uptime, reliability, or maintenance burden on your team. Some of the best teams out there trust Retool, Brex, Coinbase, Plaid, DoorDash, Legal Genius, Amazon, Allbirds, Peloton, and so many more. The developers at these teams trust Retool as their platform to build their internal tools, and that means you can too. It's free to try, so head to retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. And by our friends at Acuity, a new platform that brings fully managed Argo CD and enterprise services to the cloud or on-premise. And I'm here with two of the co-founders from Acuity, Jesse Suen and Alexander Matusenchev. So the Acuity platform is in beta right now. You guys have some big ideas you're executing on around Argo CD, managed Argo CD, Kubernetes native application delivery, and the power of GitOps. Help me understand the what and the why of what you're doing right now. So we started Acuity because we saw what was happening in the Kubernetes community, the challenges that people were facing about developer experience. And having run Argo CD for Intuit for a couple of years, we knew it took like a small team to build this and scale it and provide a performant solution for the developers. And so at Acuity and the Acuity platform, what we're trying to do is, the first thing we're trying to do is actually provide Argo CD as a fully managed solution to our users. But that is just actually the start of things. And we actually want to take the next steps on improving the whole GitOps and developer experience and providing new tools and ecosystems around Argo and the Argo project. Yeah, that's right, Jesse. So Argo CD is just the beginning, but every company eventually needs way more tools integrated into the DevOps platform. And that's what we're hoping to deliver with Acuity platform. So we're hoping to provide a great user interface that enables developers to achieve what they need in a matter of just a few clicks. But we also want to make Argo CD enterprise ready. What that means is our customers would get audit and insightful analytics out of the box without configuring anything. That's what we did at Intuit, and we learned that it was not so easy to do. And that's what we're hoping to solve for multiple organizations. Very cool. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Alex. Again, listeners, this is a closed beta. Check it out. Acuity.io slash changelog. Head there and see what this platform is all about. Again, Acuity.io slash changelog. Links are in the show notes. you want to ship it or not today uh i can so last time i tried to ship it is when i like disconnected and everything went wrong because i switched monitors and then this is connected through usb to that and just like everything crashed i see i i will try though i'll try to do it just on this machine and it'll take a while because it has to like build the world by the way it's using more than one core okay don't see it anymore because i don't i'm not sharing my screen but let me let me this. Let me share this window, and if I do htop, if I sort by process, and I don't want to tree view. There you go. Actually, you're right. It's 122 percent, so it's not quite that much. The the rest is probably just re-rendering the UI because of the spinner. The re-rendering the UI. You mean this one? Yeah, that. 
This one right here. Okay. There's a lot of magical shell escape sequences going on to render that. This is amazing. I mean, wow. I mean, we were we had like a something similar with TTY two and TTY um, on Dagger happening just like this week. And oh wow. Some people have some questions for you. How did you accomplish this this magical feat? And guess what? Base is open source, so anyone can go and check it out, including you, dear listener. Have a look at base uh, Vito base on GitHub. Yep, I'll put the link in the show notes. Okay. Please refactor my code for me. Someone's got to do it. Yes, exactly. Yes, pull requests, please. That's how all great software is built <laughs> these days. Okay, cool. I can start shipping it over here. Maybe I can mm -hmm. try to share as well. Go for it. Yes, let's. I'm going to stop sharing my screen so you can start sharing yours. I'm going to control C my fib loop. Control C. Yes. Man, this is too cool. I, I, I was not expecting this, but I'm <laughs> delighted, I have to say. Mission accomplished. Yeah, so this is shipping base 0 0.9. It's going to take a long time because it has to build the next image for shipping base, which has a bunch of dependencies. And I don't think that's even started yet. Uh, yeah, it's showing the music visualization there. There's no way to tell, but I'm sure it's out of sync. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this uh, visualizer, the, uh, the colors on the website, the space invaders, the little base clefts that show up next to paragraphs to give you a deep link. Mm -hmm. um, these are really all efforts to um, keep base fun for me as a maintainer and also make it obvious that this is a tool built for fun. And if you want to have fun, mm -hmm. <laughs> come hang out uh, and contribute. Because uh, I think that was one of the things that went kind of wrong with Concourse was it was no matter how much we tried to inject fun into it, really the user base was like serious business. People trying to do like very serious things like ship software, run CI for their organization, um, one of the most controversial things I think in Concourse was if you run fly and Concourse isn't running, it says, is your Concourse running? Better go catch it, lol. Which yeah. we got some complaints about because it's like, when my server is not running, I don't want to see you making fun of me, which is fair. But mm. People taking themselves too seriously. You know, I do that sometimes. I do that often, actually. And I think we all do to some extent. I think taking our us, uh, taking ourselves first and foremost too seriously. You may be stressed, and that's just like a sign that you're stressed. And some of the balance, the checks and balances, aren't working quite as well as they should. And you stop seeing the fun in things. It's, this stuff is supposed to be fun. We're supposed to be enjoying this because we spend so much time dealing with all sorts of weird stuff. Mistakes. Mistakes which, you know, well-intentioned people did the best they could with what they knew at the time. And that's it. That's that's all. That, like, no one tried to introduce the bug. No one tried to ship the broken software. Number of things just, you know, went the way they do, as they do, and that's what we end up with. How are we going to improve it? How are we going to, you know, take it lightly, do the best we can, improve, and remember to keep having fun. So I really like that story. I really like how you're thinking about this. I think more of us need to do that. Yeah, I, I think there's there's nothing more humbling than trying to build software, especially if you're trying to build software for other people. And like, it's it's easy to build software for yourself. That's mostly what I've been doing with Base. Um, and I think that's a good thing. It's harder to build it for other people because you don't know exactly where they're coming from. 
that I think is like one of the things I kind of feel bad about with Concourse was it was very strongly opinionated. And over time, a lot of users came to Concourse not because they chose it and like, you know, bought into those opinions, but because their organization chose it. And then they had to deal with the very strong opinions that Concourse had about things. For example, passing runtime data into tasks is like a hill that I died on in Concourse because I didn't want it to be possible to have your tasks become not hermetic and become dependent on Concourse itself. But there are reasons people end up wanting that because they've already bought into Concourse and like having that become a blocker means having to buy out from it and like completely switch to something else, which if you like the rest of it, uh, it's not great to be blocked on that. So that's kind of another thing I'm doing differently with base is trying to meet people where they are more and make like the good patterns feel obvious, mm. make the bad patterns not feel great, but probably still be doable <laughs> to some extent, you know, still okay. But yeah, not the best experience for sure. I think a lot of frameworks, the ones that stood the test of time are a bit like that. Things are possible within them, but then you will feel the pain because you're trying to go against what they were designed to do. And I think it's almost like you need to know when you're off the well-trodden path or when you're off, like not what is possible, but what is easy. And some things you now may be unfinished, but if something is simple, I think, if something is minimal, as you mentioned, you mentioned... Uh, scheme? Scheme, thank you, scheme. Yes, that's, that's one that you mentioned. So you went from six to five because you realize you don't need the sixth one. Really simple primitives, but that are dependable that are intuitive to a certain degree, um, because it's still like, you know, all abstract stuff. And that's, that's, that tends to be hard, especially when you start combining things. And then you can't imagine all the ways in which it can combine it, what happens next, second order, third order effects, so on and so forth. The point being, if the surface is small, if the interfaces are well-defined, if there aren't many combinations possible, because there shouldn't be that many combinations possible, I think, right, because you have like the number of items of like items in the set is smaller, then fewer things can go wrong. And if something does go wrong, then you will address that one thing, but you don't add more features. You don't add the seventh, eighth, ninth element so that you start having like this right. uh, explosion of like permutations. It's like, it's a system and everything ideally reflects on each other. I think you build a good system by having every component leverages some other component within it, because that's also what kind of installs those guardrails and at least makes it easier to justify like, hey, this has to be this way because otherwise this other load-bearing property of concourse or base just doesn't work. And you need that because, well, you, you just want that. Like caching, for example, um, was kind of a forcing function for having resources be pure. And you definitely want to be caching all those fetches, right? How, how do you handle that, by the way, in, in base? the whole caching aspect, because that's a big one. And actually it's even like in the tagline. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read it because I want to say it exactly as it is. Base is a scripting language for running commands and caching the shit out of them. That's supposed to be funny. <laughs> not ironic, not arrogant. I mean, it's just, you know, that's what we want. You want everything to be cached all the time. Honestly, all the magic there is in BuildKit. Base is really just building up the LLB data structure and just setting it over the wire. Mm. BuildKit is the one that tracks all the dependencies between things. Um, and if it doesn't need to run something because it already ran it, then it just won't run it. So if I run this ship it thing, uh, if it ever finishes, if I run this again, theoretically it just doesn't know up because every command is cached and every input is controlled. 
where that starts to break down is when you start passing things in from the host machine. That's where you need like really good diffing properties. This one should be fine because none of this should be coming from the host. It passes the SHA in and like within this JSON file, there's a git clone and a git checkout somewhere of that SHA. Okay. And BuildKit, when it comes to running BuildKit, I know there's a couple of good talks, including one from Apple. I think it was from KubeCon 2021. I can leave a link in the show notes. And they're talking about how to run BuildKit in the context of Kubernetes. You have a cluster of BuildKit instances, and then you know where the caches are located. So you, do you use like some smart routing so you know like where to send jobs? You do some hash-based routing, mm-hmm. and then you have most likely things in the cache. But the cache is distributed. Yeah, it's tricky because like this is one of the things we struggled with with Concourse was do you bias to place workloads where a cache is present or where it's not present? Because if you do one, then you end up with like everything thundering onto one machine. Mm-hmm. If you do the other, then you're not caching as much. Ideally, you're like caching once per worker. So if you run things enough, it'll warm across the board. But yeah, that's there. There's trickiness within there as well, I guess is all I would say. And sometimes it comes down to the use case, like user has to know if it's going to be cheaper to transfer this over the wire or just fetch it from scratch. Sometimes it's faster to just avoid the cache. Mm-hmm. It's like a giant repo. Interesting. Do you think that it's important for caching for it to be as close as possible to the compute? Or do you think it doesn't really matter if the cache is too close? Because in my mind, I think the cache should be on the same instance where the compute is. So it's almost like you want to distribute the job using maybe like a hash shrink algorithm so that jobs, the same job ends up on the same host, on the same node. And I know that Cassandra had this, like it had like a, like a rebalancing mechanism where if you added more nodes into the cluster, there would be the hash ring. So they would occupy, each node would, would occupy less of the, of the hashing space. And there would be like some rebalancing where the data would we would move across. And then there would be like one or multiple nodes that would just like basically serve the cache that the new node was supposed to serve. I mean, is that too complicated, do you think? Or do you think it's necessary? Do you think there's something simpler? How do you think about that? Because that's a really interesting problem, especially for CI systems that need to run at scale. Yeah. And you need to balance your right the mm-hmm. the staleness. Like, sorry, like like some jobs need to be fresh and other jobs need to have a cache because they will run faster. That gets to like the fundamental question, I guess, is it, it's, I feel like it's impossible to predict really because it depends on how long does it take to build the cache versus how long does it take to transfer the cache. I don't have any unique insight on the Cassandra specific things you mentioned there, but that's the fundamental thing with Concourse. And that's where we were like, at one point we were considering tracking the average duration, like on a task by task basis because then you can kind of try to make that calculation, but you have to benchmark it against like the internal network transfer. So I guess ideally you would have a system that can kind of learn from the things that it's running, which that gets tricky because how do you identify these things? Um, it depends on like the hermetic aspect, right? Because if you're running something that's uh, completely controlling its inputs and like maybe you could reuse a Git clone from earlier, you need some way of like identifying that they're really the same. Exactly, yes. One thing I was experimenting with in base was having it so that when you do a git clone, it would actually have multiple layers. It would have one initial layer that is like just git clone the repo, cache this every day, and then a, a later layer does a git fetch to bring it up to speed. And then the layer after that does a git checkout. That way you can kind of have fine-grained 
Uh, you can have coarse grain caching at the lowest level, so you're only cloning once a day, but then fetching at some other interval, and then the final checkout is how you get there. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's one way to cut it, um, and like have more fine-grained caching of Git repos specifically. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think I've seen a system that really learns from the runtime of how long things take to run versus the size of the output that comes out of them. That sounds like a really interesting problem, and I would love to solve that one day. Because it sounds like it, it will unlock so much. Like, forget AI, forget machine learning, like forget all that stuff. I think it's like, I think it gets just just too much hype. Something simple like this that can keep track of what is happening in the system, and based on what happens, it can try and do something else. Like literally, like little like optimizations. Okay, based on this, I'm going to try that, and that result, it's going to use it for the next calculation. Mm-hmm. Based on all these things which I've done, I think this is going to be better. And it's just like small iterations towards eventually finding its own sweet spot. It, it just reminds me a bit like Conway's Game of Life. Hmm. You know, where like they, they just like keep changing and eventually like you start seeing those patterns and it just happens and, and they, they just know what to do. Like, how is that even possible? And they start like mimicking, you start seeing like, oh, it's just fascinating. So that's what I imagine. <laughs> for this caching problem where it just learns and eventually just like gets to a point where it's stable, it's happy, and there's nothing more than you can do to improve. And then everything is cached. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess it is machine learning. Yeah, in a certain, but about it. yeah. <laughs> like in the basic, in the most basic sense, right? It's a machine learning how long things take. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It is, but I think, I think it can, it can go so crazy, right? Like, like oh, you have all the different, then you have like neural networks and Bayesian filters and like there, it just goes a bit crazy after that. And most of it is over my head, to be honest, but I like things simple. And I think simple is defined by, you know, like my capacity of understanding things because that's what it is and it's everyone's capacity. So there's like a common point where each of us, it's easy for us, for all of us to understand that quickly and easily. And I think that's what's simple for most of us. That's how I think of it. I, I always also prefer simple because at least when it breaks, you know probably what happened. One failure mode for that, I guess, is you're running something on a shared machine that's also running something else that's really expensive. So it like messes with your numbers and it suddenly thinks it's more expensive in the future. But maybe there's just a button to clear the cache. <laughs> All everything comes down to is clearing the cache. That's right. Cache invalidation, right? Right. Okay. So... What was the most fun thing to work when it comes to base? The thing that you enjoyed working on the most? Because this was important. Like making base fun was important. What was the most fun thing so far? Uh, I think building the language itself. There's been a lot of different vectors for fun, but just getting back to what I was really into back in the day, just like coming up with uh, a language and trying to have as few concepts as possible that like leverage each other in interesting ways. One example is in base, what you might call maps in Clojure mm-hmm. or like hashes in Ruby is called scopes because they're used as both a data structure scope, but also as an actual scope when you evaluate base code. Mm-hmm. So if you, for example, take like a JSON scope, like a a scope that was like parsed from JSON, you could actually evaluate base code using that as like the runtime environment. A lot of the times where I try to like, anytime I see like enough similarity between two concepts, I actually try to just magnetically like put them together 
And so far, it's been paying off. I'm sure it'll blow up in my face by like over leveraging one concept in some mm -hmm. interesting way. But I'm hoping that like the the fact that base is kind of restricted to one domain, I'm hoping that keeps it like low likelihood of too many foot guns emerging from my overuse of concepts. <laughs> well, thing is, you never know until you keep trying and keep getting to a point where you realize, you know what, this doesn't work, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Because you always like, as long as you have a fitness function that can determine whether what you do gets you closer to where you're trying to get to, that's okay. If it says I'm closer, then I'm closer. Unless the function is wrong. But I think you would know if the function was wrong because that's really fundamental. And I think in your case, the fitness function is, is it fun? Am I having fun with this? And that's like instinct. You know that you're having fun. It's very difficult to game that, <laughs> you know? There's no amount of like anything that you can do other than just be honest with yourself, yeah. whether you're delivering towards that goal. So I see that and I've noticed that there's a lot of nicks, like I don't want to say a lot of, but like a significant amount of nicks in base. What is the relationship between nicks and base to language? So this is something I've been very careful about because I know nicks is one of those things where the mere mention of it near your project can send people like scurrying and running to the hills and trying to avoid it because some people see it as like very complicated and hard to get into and i think they're right but there's a lot of like really cool parts to nix that are hard to find anywhere else to me the biggest value to nix is having just the largest and most up-to-date software package repository in the world mm -hmm. there's actually a dashboard like managing this and comparing nix to all these other like debian and all these other systems and it's just like Nix is like so far removed from them, it's not even funny. They have things that are just like literally automatically updating packages in the repo. Where Where is this dashboard? Because I haven't seen it and I'm very curious. Uh, I think I put it in the release notes for the first release where I started. For base 010? Yeah. There, there's something which I need to mention here. Zero to okay. DJ, Daniel Jones, congrats for your first pull request to base. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go a long, long way back and seeing you as the first contributor to base, <laughs> put a smile on my face. So if you're listening to this, and if you're not listening, that's okay. I made sure that, that you are. I've sent you a link with this episode, maybe even the exact timestamp. Well done for doing the first contribution to base. That was very nice to see. Cool. So I'm looking at the 010. Uh, zero 02. I, I just put the link in the chat as a shortcut. My machine is really suffering. 10 minutes, more than 10 minutes, 15 minutes, more than 15, 17 minutes, I think. This is like a, it's a 2018 MacBook Pro. So it's not even M1. Right. Yeah, run, definitely running that. Like, couldn't you have run it in on like your Ryzen? Because I think that's what you have, like your have Ryzen 7, I'm imagining. That was the plan. But when I did that, that's when like everything disconnected. So. Oh, I see. So when you SSH into it, it doesn't work if you were to SSH? I don't, I don't think I have SSH set up. I was just switching the display. I have like a KVM button, but I forgot that everything else is also flowing through it, so. Oh, I see what you mean. I see, I see, I see. Okay, repology.org. Wow, that is impressive. Number of packages in repository, number of fresh packages. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. D ports, Fedora, Ubuntu 2004. I'm looking for the number of packages, number of freshness, and I can't find in that graph, I can't find Nix. And I don't think I can search because it's generated, it's rendered. Oh, it should be very top right on the first graph. 
you'll see Nick's package is unstable. I can see that, and uh, yes, stable. But on the second one, yeah, what is that, by the way? Zoomed in onto smaller repositories. Oh. Oh. It's it's actually outside of that. <laughs> so yeah. that's like a zoom in. It's outside of that. Wow. Yeah. And that's zoomed in some more. Homebrew casks. Wow, that's so far away. That's so far away. Okay, that's really cool. To be fair, I think um, there's a lot of automation driving this. There's probably like, maybe they're representing Python libraries and things like that as Nick packages. I'm not sure. But there's, mm -hmm. it's still, usually when I want some software, it's in there, it's up to date. It was If something shipped, it's been up to date as of like a few days after it shipped, yeah. which is really what I'm looking for when I'm trying to build images and uh, run things with base, is I want something that's just like, give me the latest version. I don't care about sticking to Debian. If I wanted Debian, I could just use Debian and app to get installed or whatever. But the nice thing is that Nix also gives you precise reproducible builds. Mm -hmm. So interestingly... I have my Linux system, I switched it to, and I have like a couple of, of workstations. One of them is, is this NixOS host. Uh, it's an AMD Ryzen 7. It's a completely fanless system. Mm -hmm. I really liked like the whole like configuring. It was really nice. It has like a desktop interface. I just use some dashboards on it, Grafana dashboards as I monitor my connection, my internet connection, things like that. On a Mac, I tried installing Nix and I have tried running it for about seven months. But it has this weird, I don't know, like I couldn't get updates to work consistently. Updating the channel didn't work. There's this Darwin like extension or something like that, that you need to install. That was a bit weird. Hmm. So my question to you is, do you use Nix on Mac? Uh, I actually, for my development, I use WSL. So I just use Nix within Linux, within Windows. <laughs> I see. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so you have basically all three on your Mac. The host is Mac. Host is Windows. The host is Windows. No, host is Windows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I'm just using Mac right now because it has the Opal software for my webcam. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, okay, okay. So the whole reason for this being horrendously slow and like fumbling through all this is that Opal doesn't have software for Windows right now. Yeah, I see. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. But you're like Windows is like your host operating system in that you run Linux and all development works happens in Linux. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And Linux, I'm assuming you're using NixOS. That is your host. So that, that that's your Linux operating system. Uh, it's Ubuntu with Nix uh, just for the package manager. Interesting. Um, it's honestly pretty cobbled together. I, did, I only started using Nix like once I had already started building base, so I was already using Ubuntu and everything for that. So I just, I wanted to see how Nix might interplay with base. I guess I never finished that thought, uh, by the way, which is that like, I don't want Nix to be a dependency of base because that would be terrifying to people to have to not only learn my esoteric Lisp, but learn this esoteric Nix language beneath it. So it really only leverages it insofar as I, as the project maintainer, use Nix to build the images that feed into base. And I use base to build those images using Nix. So it's base just sees Nix as another command to run. I see. I'm just running Nix build, and then that produces an OCI image tarball, and then I pass that to another thunk. Because you can use thunks that use archives built from other thunks as an image. 
Right. One other thing I've been experimenting with, though, is because Nix is so good for just like pulling in packages as dependencies, and a lot of images that people build for CI are just I need Ruby installed, or I need like, but I don't need just Ruby. I need like Ruby plus Git plus UPX or like whatever tool chain I use because it's pretty rare that you can just use Ruby off the shelf and have that provide like the the library Ruby image and have that provide everything you need. Mm-hmm. So one thing I'm planning to experiment with is having base, just like it starts BuildKit, have it start a Nixery host. And then you can just do like from Nix slash GH slash Ruby slash Go, and it'll just like build an image on the fly with all those dependencies. I want that. Yeah, same. That is so cool. Oh, wow. That will be so cool. Yeah. No more like building throwaway images. Yeah, especially I, I use Nixery.dev often, especially in demos. So if I'm trying to put together a bunch of tools ad hoc, arbitrary, I don't know what they are, I get this Nixtree dev image, which has all the tools that, that I need, and that's my starting point. I've done that often, and it works so well. It's like, like why don't more people do this? Yeah. But again, Nixtree.dev is like best effort basis, and okay, Vincent, we have to talk again. We really, and, and I think that you need to talk to Alex too. Because there's something really cool about this. And if you can run it locally, because I, that's what I'm hearing from you, if you can run Nixery Dev locally via base, oh my goodness me, I want that. Yeah. Because then, like, what keeps biting me is the freaking Docker Hub rate limits. <laughs> They're so low now. Oh, yes. My. Uh, Tell me about yeah. it. Oh, hey, it finished something. Okay. Okay. So, by the way, dear listener, all this time we have been waiting for a base build at a base release 090 and we've been filling time and i'm so glad we did because we talked about so many interesting things so let us not get distracted by the release and please continue because this is super interesting what was it oh yeah so docker hub and the rate limits it keeps making my tests fail because my tests run like they don't they don't have any authentication set up so it's always just using the anonymous uh rate limit which is like 100 calls per six hours or something like which is sounds like a lot but it's really not when you're running tests that hit docker hub and you're Mm -hmm. quickly iterating so like it would be great to use nixery.dev but then yeah i don't want to burden vincent vincent right vincent yeah vincent ambo yeah i don't want to burden him with like me depending on it for production and i don't want to be like hitting his registry and adding load to it but if you're just running it locally then that solves both problems because there's no rate limit it should be much faster than this. Uh, this entire time we've been talking, we've just been waiting for Nix to build and export an image, which mm-hmm. it would be much faster on my machine, but what would be great is if I didn't even have to do this because Nixery does all the like magic stuff with layers where you don't have to build and export and unpack because mm-hmm. it all just happens registry side. Now, I have to say that I've seen in our CI a dagger various failures related to uh, images. Images aren't being pulled from registries. It's usually Docker Hub, but also caches. So registries and caches, I think registries are a type of cache. That's the way I see them. They are like once you start depending on them and once you start running like many, many builds through and you have many pull requests and all that, you start realizing basically how much degradation there is in them because it's and and the way way we, we see them is as flakes run the test again it passes 
and you just get like errors from like um, endpoints. So if you could have that somewhere close to where basically like where the compute is, and you wouldn't need to do any of the network transfer, that would be so much quicker. Because network has its own properties, which is latency, which is um, packet loss, which is like all sorts of things. And you've, you've heard me talk about that for a while. But Alex and Vincent, hmm, you gave me a bunch of ideas there. Yeah, episode 37, building fully declarative systems with Nix. Uh, that was the episode when we talked, and I think I think we should talk again because there is something really interesting here. Okay, let me see what we can do there because I'm really excited about this, and I definitely want this. And we need to see how to continue my NixOS journey because I'm I'm almost there, but there's like a couple of things which I'm still missing. For example, putting on the version control everything. The thing that we tried to do happened, and I will let Alex tell us more about it. We are preparing to wrap up i'm pretty sure that we could go easy for another hour like start unpacking some of the things there's so much there i'm super excited about base i loved concourse for a long long time and it could have been so much more base a new life i think i'm starting to see a lot of the similarities and thank you alex for helping me see that but over to you as we prepare to wrap up like, how would you like us to end this great conversation? Yeah, I don't know. Check out Base <laughs> if you want to have fun. If you're interested in, if you've been curious about, like, building a language but felt like the bar to that was too high, um, Base is a great place to experiment with different ideas because the performance concerns are much lower than in other traditional languages. Um, if you feel like you're tired of YAML and tired of templating YAML, and tired of gluing together bespoke abstractions and would rather try to glue together bespoke CLIs in a bespoke language, then uh, yeah, check it out. Latest version has the most important release in a long time, rave mode. Mm -hmm. uh, press R and just keep vibing from program to program. That's really cool. Yeah, so R rave connects your Spotify, the thing that we've been trying to do. 090, that's amazing. Thank you very much for keeping the release for when we recorded. It made it feel so much more special. I, I got very excited about it, so. If only it didn't take an hour, because the stupid MacBook. Ugh. That's okay, computers, you know. We know how to do it better next time. But this was really, really, it was, it was real fun. Let's put it that way. So I think on that, from that perspective, I think you've accomplished your goal to keep it fun, to keep it light. And hopefully it will be the same for others. An hour of fun. That's the an hour of fun. Positive way to look at it. Well, we are nerds. What can I say? You know, that's like Jared's word. Like we are nerds. So this is the fun that we have. So Alex, thank you very much for joining me. I'm looking forward to next time and I look forward to what happens with bass. This is amazing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship It. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changelog.com slash master. You can connect with like-minded developers via changelog.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. Your beats are awesome, Breakmaster Cylinder. That's it for this week. See you all next week. The next two episodes follow up on this one.
The next one is with someone that you've already had the pleasure of in episode 31. Tamar Saleh is a former VP of engineering at Pivotal, the company where Concourse CI was born. He shares the two thumbs up trick and we try out the cool wall of Cloud Native. It's going to be fun.